Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. And we are recording. And by the time you hear this, Labor Day will have passed. And hopefully none of us will be complaining about traffic for the next few months, but we will see. Oh, imagine that. Am I being overly optimistic here? Yeah, we're still going to complain. It won't matter. I don't know if I've ever heard people on the South Fork of Long Island stop complaining about traffic. No, it's true. 40 years. Exactly. (laughs) But I have to tell you, like all this summer, I've been really nervous. Like I have this cute little convertible car that I usually drive around. This summer, I have not really used it much because I am afraid I'm going to get run over or not be seen. So I've been taking the bigger, beefier Subaru Forester out every time I go. Um, Just sort of a defensive mood. I don't know. (laughs) Joe, you have a cute little convertible. Have you been comfortable driving it or do you ever get nervous about yeah, see, this is always Dana. Dana and I, and and Carl Grossman, who is with us today. Hi, Carl. Um, he knows we. He had a. He had a. You still have your Miata? No, I sold it a couple of years ago. Ah, oh, all right. Well, I have my second Miata, and Dana and I always had this argument because she had the Jeep, and I had the Miata, and she would say, "My Jeep is so much safer. It's built like a tank." And I say, "If you look at national automobile traffic safety um, studies." smaller cars are much safer because they're more maneuverable and so you never get into the crash you could drive it right under that truck joe <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah there's a move <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you're able to nimbly avoid crashes in a way that uh bigger cars can't yeah, sure so. i'm not sure if i buy that but whatever <laughs> well i'm going to do the introductions because nobody really knows who we are yet although everybody knows who we are because they listen to this every week because our faithful fans out there. Um, so manning the controls is Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Good morning, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And we also have Catherine G. Manu with us, or also known as Georgie. Hey, Georgie. Hey, Annette. I'm Catherine Manu, and I'm one of the publishers of the Express News Group. And also Joseph Shaw's back, although he prefers Joe and never Joey. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Joey. Joe Shaw, uh, executive editor. And I'm Annette Hinkle, and I'm the Arts and Living Editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us is special guest today, Carl Grossman. And Carl has been a longtime journalist here on the East End of Long Island, and he's also one of our columnists. And Carl tends to dive into issues that a lot of us who cover very local news don't, which is more of the county legislation and what's going on on a slightly larger scale outside our area. And and it's a good thing he does because I'm clueless. You know, it's funny. I I talked about how I'll say hello to you first, Carl. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine in it. Are you, are you home in Sag Harbor? Right here uh, on a sunny day, which is nice. Yeah. It's good to have a sunny. Yeah. Cause given what we're talking about, it's very good to have a sunny day. Um, but yeah, it's kind of interesting to, to get Carl's perspective on things that are happening on a county level level and, and higher up. And one of the, the things that um, Carl wrote about in his most a recent column for the paper was very timely. It was sort of about how we were very lucky in dodging a bullet with hurricane Henri Um, which just skirted us to the east, and we didn't have much in the way of damage at all. But coincidentally, uh, um, recently, we had the remnants of um, Hurricane Ida wore through the metro area. Yeah, August 30th and 31st, I think, yeah. Really did a number on the New York metro region, and people actually drowned in their basement apartments, which is insane. So uh, coincidentally, Carl had just written about the, the need to kind of move this legislation forward to get some funding for bearing the power lines out here, because so many of the power lines are not. So Carl, do you want to jump in a little bit and talk about where this has been and where it might be going? Let me note that I first began writing about the issue of underground, undergrounding electric lines Back in a long time ago now, 85, was writing a book called Power Crazy. It was about the Long Island Lighting Company and uh, its push for uh, the brunt of the book, nuclear power plants on Long Island. But uh, the book was written uh, in the midst of, well, after, in the midst of and after Hurricane Gloria, which knocked out electricity on Long Island for a lot of people, over 600,000 customers of 
than the Long Island Lighting Company for a week and 10 days, even, even longer. And in doing the research uh, on the book, I was interested in how telephone service continued. And uh, I learned from uh, actually Bruce Reisman, who used to be a reporter, then became a PR person for New York Telephone. That, hey, we buried most of our lines. And as a result, 96% of our customers on Long Island continued with, um, with telephone service. Uh, and uh, now and then I've, uh, I've gone back and uh, in my column uh, talked about, hey, why don't we underground lines on Long Island? And then, and this is most recently in April, Kevin Law, on his last day of being president and CEO of the Long Island Association, sent a, a letter to President Biden and Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, asking that uh, funds be made available to, uh, quoting here from the letter, to make electric grids more resilient to climate disasters on Long Island to bury the electric grid on Long Island. Uh, and it just goes on how there's 10,000 miles of overhead electric lines on Long Island. And he talks about uh, electric service going out uh, in various storms, Isaiah, Superstorm Sandy, Hurricane Gloria, all demonstrated the immense vulnerabilities of our grid. Uh, and uh, then I, I point out in my current column how there's this, uh, well, two huge infrastructure pieces of legislation that have been passed by Congress. And we're talking about trillions of dollars. Uh, certainly, I would think some money could be set aside to do something about the um, electric lines on Long Island to, to, to get them buried. Uh, I mean, this isn't something particularly unique to Long Island. In a number of the pieces I've written, I quote from TND World. It's a website for utilities. And this is from a, 19, a 2019 uh, essay, uh, that website. It's headlined, it's time for utilities to reconsider undergrounding power lines. And it, it, the lead sentence Climate change is unquestionably generating intense, costly storms, a hard fact that utilities must confront. Uh, goes on, most utilities opt not to bury power lines due to cost, but leaving so much of our power infrastructure exposed to environmental assault may not be worth the short-term cost savings. So, so bottom line, here, here are these infrastructure bills uh, passed by Congress. Is it, is, it just a, is it just a matter of cost out here, Carl, or are there other issues like high water table? Does that come into play or, or do you think it's just about the money? I think it's just about the money. Uh, it would cost a, a good deal. But on the other hand, to for example, PSE&G, which is our, uh, well, it manages the electric grid on Long Island. It's, it, it's made a huge effort at tree trimming. Uh, I mean, you're forever stopped talking about traffic. That, that, that's expensive stuff. It's real expensive stuff. And then you have uh, a situation where, uh, well, if, if Henry just had a different path, in fact, the path we thought it would be on and hit us. Uh, I mean, Newsday had this big headline about how Henry was heading for the east end of, of Long Island and so forth. But then there was a last minute shift and it's... Uh, path and it uh, oh it, it it moved north just east of Montauk Point. Rhode Island ended up struck. I mean if we were hit, probably a lot of us uh, on Long Island wouldn't have electricity. I, I was just just watching TV and there was a report uh, out of New Jersey that 60 some, something thousand people were still without electricity. And then, then if we want to go back or I want to go to where, where it hit head on, and that's New Orleans, they're saying a month 
Actually, my husband and I were talking about it when we were seeing the damage from the storm in New Orleans. Can you bury lines there? I mean, you can't even bury bodies in the ground in New Orleans. So that's what I wasn't even sure if the, the lines could really be that deep. George, you used to live in New Orleans. Do you know much about the, the ground structure there? Um, I mean, I know that what you say is true about like they don't bury bodies. The cemeteries in New Orleans are these above ground cemeteries and the flooding down there, even without um, without a hurricane, even just a really bad rainstorm and the streets would flood. And um, when they're really bad, sometimes you would actually see coffins from some of the above ground cemeteries like floating in the street. Wow, that is a horror story um, yeah, right there, isn't it? it? <laughs> the cemeteries in New Orleans are very, very cool, but, um, you know, definitely um, a symptom of the fact that I, I'm not sure if you could bury lines there. I mean, I was young when I lived there, so I wasn't exactly studying the electrical grid, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I would, I would imagine that would be challenging at best, but yeah, I mean, we have friends still down there. One of them, um, Jennifer Gaines, who's from Montauk, um, she and her family live down there and they evacuated to Memphis and they don't have any plans as of this point to return because they just have no idea what the future holds. Carl, I looked it up and I was surprised to find out that LIPA says, you, you used the figure earlier, that there's about 10,000 miles in the LIPA system of above ground lines, but they have 5,200 miles of underground lines as well. So it's not like it's it's a it's a technology. About a third of the system is underground. So it's not like this is a completely new technology that they would have to adopt. They clearly know how to put power lines underground. And I, I think it's an interesting debate um, and you touched on it. I think it is about the money. Um, I think the, the issues like the water table and um, salt water and how that may affect uh, anything you do putting putting power lines underground is all stuff we can deal with. I think it's technology. It's just about the cost and maybe the infrastructure bills are going to provide that that boost of 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 money that'll that'll allow us to at least reconsider whether this is possible or not. I mean, remember in Watermill, um, I mean, this was what, like about 10 years ago. And they needed to put in like the larger poles to support, you know, the system. And there was this big uproar and people were, you know, outraged about um, vistas. Eventually there was an agreement to bury them, but it was really about money. I mean, but they just buried lines on Long Beach in Noyak. And in West Hampton, in West Hampton Beach. Well, and let's be honest, every time you drive through the, like the estate section south of the highway, all of those lines are buried. <laughs> and I don't think it's because of weather. I have a feeling that it's about money. And I feel like no one really has talked about that yet. But I wonder if we have any thoughts. Is that the reason? Is it because those are the wealthiest parts of this area and those people get kind of what they want? I don't know. It's it's aesthetics. And, and West Hampton Beach did it when they did their uh, village, uh, you know, their renovation of their business district paying for undergrounding of lines, Carl, that was one of the things that they included in that project, right? They, they, they put the lines underground and, and urban, I, I would call West Hampton Beach urban, mind you, but um, this, is, this is a thing. I mean, I know that San Antonio, Texas and Colorado Springs and Saratoga Springs, there's a lot of communities that have paid to underground lines, but that's the thing. I think LIPA's position, Carl, is hey, we're happy to do it, but you've got to pay for it. Again, here you have the government with these trillion dollar uh, packages of infrastructure uh, improvements. So uh, whatever it would cost, uh, if it would in the millions, compared to trillions, you know, it's, it's, it's a small fraction. And, and, and in terms of, of, of the point made about whether you can, in fact, safely underground lines on Long Island with our water table and so forth. Again, reading from this utility um, website, this TND World, uh, the fellow who, who writes it, Wei Du, says, growing up in Manhattan, where most power distribution is protected below ground, I really experienced power outages. And just, just a little, uh, let me know too, uh, he writes, utilities have responded with attempts to harden their infrastructure, replacing some wooden poles with composite or steel, 
uh, those are those monstrous uh, metal poles we've had a lot of controversy about that LIPA has put up, more vigilantly trimming trees and improving monitoring of power systems. Still, he writes, overhead power lines remain very much at risk. And then you got to factor into the equation uh, in regard to course, the frequency of what is called now extreme weather events, climate change. I was struck by Ida, which came ashore all the way in Louisiana. And usually when a storm comes ashore down there and travels all the way across landward across the United States, it loses steam by the time it hits you know, New York in that area, but it still had plenty of power. Um, I think that's a sign, too, of the worsening. We're just going to see more extreme weather. I mean, it started off as like a, a tropical storm in the Caribbean, and then it was a Category 1. And then in a matter of days, it became a Category 2. And it, of course, it was feeding off the, the heat of the Gulf of Mexico, the heat caused uh, by, uh, by climate change. I heard a statistic this morning on NPR that we have billion-dollar FEMA responses about four times as often now as we did just five or ten years ago. So the conditions are worsening. And you're right, Carl. You know, we talk about the upfront cost of underlining these lines, but what about the cost of recovery after these storms? And what about the cost to our economy when power is out for a week when they're restoring um, lines? The, those all have to be factored in. That was the other thing that I was talking about with my husband is, you know, just looking at all the damage in New York and New Jersey, it's like, wow, does this mean that now our insurance is going to go way up? Because I could see the insurance companies penalizing anybody that lives anywhere in this area because they're going to have so many claims. And it just seems to me like it's in the insurance company's best interest too, to advocate for getting these power lines buried. Because, you know, the longer a house is without power, I would think the big greater the chance for them having to really pay out in a lot more claims. Pay now or, or pay more later, right? I mean, that's what it comes down to. LIPA's counter argument is that it's two to five times more expensive to bury lines than it is to put them above ground. But Carl, when I was looking online, I think those figures are open for debate because from what I read, that's transmission lines. And that can be a fairly expensive process is to put transmission lines underground. But when you're talking about the regular electric lines, the distribution lines that go to houses and down streets and things like that, I saw some figures that said that the additional cost of undergrounding is, is in the double digit percentage. It's, it's like 12 to 25% more expensive, but it's not multiples. And so, I, I mean, and I also wonder if, the mere fact that we're not undergrounding more lines means it's more expensive to do it. If we started doing that as the primary way of installing electric lines, the cost would probably come down, wouldn't you think? I, I, again, go back to the telephone company, mm -hmm. which is not exactly, uh, uh, whether it's Verizon or back to New York Telephone, uh, these weren't companies that were big on spending loads and loads of money but uh, they did under, and what's good for telephone lines, good for electric lines, uh, it, you know, in terms of uh, the suitability of putting them in the ground on, uh, in the ground on Long Island. And then just, I, I made a mistake that I, I, I was talking about uh, Henry hitting uh, and increasing in velocity. It was Ida from one to two, category two, three, and then, then fi finally four. But I, I just want to say, in terms of my confusion, when we're getting hit by hurricanes and superstorms and whatever with such frequency, we have to consider uh, oh, uh, the, the word uh, uh, that the word being used these days is resilience. How are we going to deal with being assaulted by extreme uh, weather events on a regular basis? And for Long Island. Uh, I mean, certainly New Orleans is in Hurricane Alley, but so are we in Hurricane Alley. And uh, if we're to be hit uh, by a Category 4, like New Orleans was, uh, hurricane, the, 
the damage is going to be just utterly catastrophic, but at least we will be able to, with underground lines, maintain electric service while we're rebuilding homes and, and so forth. It just feels like our policy right now is just to go crisis to crisis, right? I, I, mean, I hate to be cynical, but I also wonder if there's a reason for that is that, you know, there's a lot of people that make a lot of money from these things. I mean, look what happened in Texas when their power grid went out in winter from that storm. It's like, you know, you saw how dysfunctional that was. And there were some people getting like $7,000 electric bills because of this bizarre system they have of sort of allowing the the corporations themselves to be in charge of setting rates and how they sell power. And I just wonder, you know, do you put a lot of um, a lot of employees out of work if you bury the lines and you don't have those road crews anymore? I mean, maybe that's my cynical self-talking, but, you know, is there a larger reason that we're keeping these things above ground and allowing, and it just seems like the whole infrastructure system has been kind of set up in a way that um, rewards sometimes um, corporations and some of these companies and how they do their business. Carl, you've been reporting on that industry for decades. Is it, it, it really is bottom line driven, right? Well, it, it's complicated. In fact, in my research for Power Crazy, I looked into the beginnings of how electricity would be uh, distributed in the United States. And there was like two paths. One would be public power, where government would, would own, own the distribution systems. Uh, utilities would be public power entities. And there's a good proportion of utilities in the US, public power, and uh, some are uh, democratically run with uh, elected, that's what LIPA was supposed to be, uh, a democratically run public power utility, not dependent on, on uh, profit. And then the other path, uh, and this goes way, way, way back over a hundred years ago, uh, the other path would be government regulated private utilities. And most utilities in this country are, uh, are regulated by uh, here in New York State is the Public Service Commission. The problem here is that the government regulators often are not uh, true watchdogs, true public representatives, and they end up uh, doing what the utility uh, would like them to do. Uh, my, my personal view is that uh, uh, public power is probably the way we should go when we're talking about uh, basic services, water, electricity and and so forth. There's been a, a renewed push to get LIPA to to go toward a public system. I know Fred Fred Thiel has been pushing for that. Um, he was upset with the, the latest contract uh, with, with PSEG and, and was pushing for that. Is that something you think is, is possible or, or is it is it just going to be status quo? Well, I, I don't know. Uh, Fred, Fred Thiel has a bill uh, put it together now. And he's been, Fred has been pushing for this for years, uh, a municipal system, uh, the municipalization of LIPA. And that's what LIPA was supposed to be. It was supposed right. to be, uh, again, a public power entity with elected trustees, and they would chart and manage Maryland's uh, electric systems and uh, their future. The problem came because uh, when LIPA then finally got going. First of all, Governor Mario Cuomo eliminated having elections to the members of the LIPA board. And it ended up with the LIPA board members being chosen by the governor, by the state assembly speaker and the president of the state senate. And then LIPA decided to job out its, uh, with this kind of board, to job out its service. And originally, it was a company called MarketSpan, which changed its name to Keyspan. Uh, and then it went to National Grid. And uh, Andrew Cuomo then was very annoyed with the, uh, well, the way National Grid didn't uh, respond properly in his view, and his view was correct, to Isaias. And he pushed out Isaias, and he, uh, uh, he, he selected this Newark-based utility, PSE and G, now it's not local, it's not a newer, uh, to, uh, to manage the electrical grid system. Now what Thiel wants, and 
it's more than Fred Thiel, Steve Engelbright, Assemblyman Steve Engelbright, a lot of, a lot of uh, representatives up in Albany. And there's been uh, uh, polls done, uh, people on Long Island also uh, very interested in, again, a municipal utility. Uh, and Fred uh, is pushing for it. And it's still kind of it, uh, in motion, whether the new governor will support uh, this is, is, is kind of critical. Uh, but uh, I, I think we've got to take the, the profit out of the equation, adding such a, a, a vital uh, service as, um, uh, as electricity. Does Greenport have their own, um, generate their own electricity? I thought I remember that they have their own system. Is that true? Does anybody know? Yeah, no, no. A, a Greenport has as little public power entity, a, a green, uh, in Nassau County, Rockville Center also has it. Uh, uh, but overall, uh, we've had, well, we had Lilco and now we have Liper. But the thing with Liper, it's kind of lost its way from what it was supposed to be. Um, so does, I was curious, does the Greenport, does it function well, those little systems? Is that kind of what Fred's talking about when he's talking about municipal um, electrical companies? Is that what they mean? Or, you know, each little district would have its own um, generation plant like Greenport? Yeah, well, in fact, if you want to see the model for what LIPA was to be, just listeners, uh, Google SMUD, S-M-U-D. It's a funny name, but it's the Sacramento Municipal Utility District. And it's a, uh, a public power entity out of Sacramento, California, uh, with a, a service area like we have and about as many, a little less ratepayers than we have on Long Island. Uh, and they also had a problem with nuclear power. Uh, they had a nuclear power plant in, uh, in that district, which uh, they closed, like the effort that we had on Long Island to close the Shoreham nuclear power plant. But so important is that SMUD runs with a democratically elected board of trustees, like, like LIPA was supposed to have, not three men in a room, what was called for years called the way New York State government often runs, but democratically elected and stresses, and this is so important, stresses solar and wind, uh, green energy. Wow. So that was supposed to be the model, but again, it, it ended up going in a different direction uh, to a large degree. Uh, I, don't, I don't wanna knock Mario Cuomo because he was very important in challenging uh, the Shoreham nuclear, it was to be the first of seven to 11 nuclear plants on Long Island that Long Island I didn't wanted to build. And uh, Mario Cuomo and I covered this in my book, Power Crazies about this, joined with Suffolk in fighting Shoreham and this scheme for many, many nuclear power plants. Uh, but then uh, certain things happened. Like one of the things that happened, and this we must be concerned about it, I mean, this is a threat to our pocketbooks, not a threat to our lives, as nuclear power on Long Island would have represented. But the original scheme, it's part of the Long Island Power Act of 1985, was to either acquire, have or acquire the assets, like the poles and the lines and so forth, of the Long Island Lighting Company, or under eminent domain, take, buy, acquire the stock of the lighting company and take it over in that way. And the stock was enormously undervalued because of Lilco's nuclear adventure. So what happened was we, uh, we went this route of acquiring assets and we're stuck now with a bill for uh, trying to, to, to stop this push for nuclear power on Long Island, stop and so forth. And Mario Cuomo wouldn't go for uh, acquiring assets. I've been told, by insiders on the state level is because he felt it would be too radical for Wall Street. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, 
brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. Can I ask you a question, Carl? The the push towards, I believe it's CCE um, in the region. I have to confess, I, this this eludes me quite a bit. I don't really understand what CCE is going to do for energy distribution. Um, but how does that play a role in all this? Does it give local communities a little bit more of a say in how, how things are done? Oh, oh ab- absolutely. And, and it's another example of, uh, of LIPA losing its way. Uh, in fact, there's a big effort out of Southampton town. Uh, can you explain oh, what, it, what it is, what CCE would do? Well, 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 well pe- people can choose CCA, right? It's community choice aggregation. So community choice aggregation. That's how badly I don't understand this. I don't even get the acronym <laughs> right. It's CCA, right? Okay. And LIPA ratepayers can choose instead of getting their electricity from LIPA. And uh, let me tell you, LIPA also talking about uh, losing its way. LIPA, which really comes out of an anti-nuclear effort, is a, is a part of the Nine Mile Point nuclear power plant upstate. I mean, uh, it should have divested itself from Nine Mile Point to one of the first things it it should have done. Uh, In any case, um, some of the electricity that we're getting from LIPA then comes from from Nine Mile Point too. And uh, PSE&G, incidentally, is a big nuclear utility. It owns several nuclear power plants in New Jersey, Salem and so forth. what community choice aggregation would do would enable folks to choose other sources of their electric uh, of their electricity, greener sources and cheaper sources. Cheaper has been really throwing a monkey wrench into what should be that process uh, by saying, "Well, we have a community choice program, and uh, it would be unfair uh, for." Uh, uh, people where you have community choice aggregation to get a lower cost in their electricity. It would kind of screw up our community. And so they've, they've been blocking it now for, uh, for well over a year. While elsewhere in New York State, ratepayers can go to community choice. And, and in various areas in the state, that, that's become a big, big thing. Fred Thiel also has had a bill. Uh, to say that ratepayers on Long Island should be afforded the same ability to join in to community choice aggregation as as folks upstate. Uh, but again, we, we go back to this, frankly, undemocratic system that's been developed from what was supposed to be a de- democratic system of electric production on Long Island. I think with democratic control, We could get to things like community choice aggregation. We can get to people getting greener electricity and cheaper electricity. Um, Annette and Georgie, you guys live in the woods. I'm curious how often you lose power when we have storms. Um, So I live in Springs and I do live in the woods in a wooded area. Um, We have made it a point to, we work with um, Jackson Dodds, who's a great local landscaper. And when we bought our house, we just started like trimming back (laughs) trees strategically to try and protect ourselves from losing power. Um, So we haven't lost power. Um, We like, we didn't lose power during Henri. Um, We didn't lose power the other night. Um, So we've been pretty fortunate. Um, However, you know, in the past living in a nearby neighborhood in Springs, when we had Irene, we were without power for 10 days. Um, You know, so it's certainly something that we are constantly bracing for. And, you know, I mean, I, I look at my power lines, which connect from, you know, the street to my house, and it, they feel really tenuous, you know, um, so. We um, lost power in Sandy for a very short time, 
Um, but then it came back on and we didn't, and our, our lines were laying across our driveway, but we decided not to let the electric company know because we figured if they saw them on the ground, they would come and turn us off. So we just kind of dealt with the power lines on the ground. But, um, but we're fortunate because it, as it turns out, my husband is in the generator business for film and entertainment. So whenever we think there's a big storm coming, we'll have one of his generators come out from Brooklyn and park in our driveway, which is what we did for Henri. And there were a couple of times, I think it was um, after, maybe it was after Irene. I don't know if you remember that Georgie, but we ended up putting the paper out at our house because we had the generator running. So all of our computers were plugged in. That was an interesting year because Sandy and Irene came through the same year. And Sandy of course was devastating you know, further west, um, and certainly, you know, for parts of, um, you know, Sag Harbor and the North Fork. Um, but, you know, we were largely spared during Sandy. Irene really clobbered us and we were without mm-hmm. power. Right. Um, yes. And I remember sitting in your living room, putting up the newspaper. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, if anybody ever needs a generator, when the power goes out, let me know. And I'll... <laughs> See, we, and Georgie, I was going to say, we did something similar at our house in Hampton Bays. Um, in Sandy, we had a big tree come down and crash through our deck, which led to a homeowner's insurance claim. And then we had in, it wasn't even a name storm, but last, I think it was last year, um, we had another tree come down and just snap our power lines that, that run from the street to the house. And that led to another homeowner's insurance claim. So we ended up taking out a lot of the trees around our property just because they were, you know, the sandy soil. And, and it's interesting because Bill and I were talking about this with Ida um, when it, you know, when the, it was still threatening to come through this part of, of the, the region, um, he had said, geez, I wonder if the ground is still saturated from Henri coming through. And then if you have Ida come through, you might not even need really bad rains and storms uh, with high winds to bring down some trees because the ground's already saturated. And, and when you have the sandy soil and everything too, um, it just, I, I don't know, the, the electrical system in this area just seems so precarious. And it feels like if we do ever get, a, and we will, I'm sorry, it shouldn't be if, when we get a direct hit, um, it's going to take the system out for a while. And it's going to be an expensive, Carl, you go back to the idea of, yeah, it's expensive to underground the lines, but it's going to be really expensive to replace all those downed lines when we get a bad storm one of these times. And one of the things we have going for us out here is that unlike, you know, I always say this, but around the New Jersey metro area, New New York area, um, they have so many rivers and creeks and that's what does them in. It's like the, the flooding from that. Like we don't really have that kind of inland waterways like they do there. So like, well, we have a lot of coastal inundation. We don't have to worry about rivers overflowing their banks and coming up that way. So I feel like in a way, bearing the lines would even be um, easier out here because you don't have to worry about, you know, rivers and things like that. And and, and in terms of home generators, just cast this issue, this problem onto people to kind of do it yourself, deal with uh, the blackouts themselves. I mean, there have been deaths because people having generators and in closed spaces, just like like in the last week or so. Uh, I mean, just that that day, the night before Henry hit, the lines at gas stations here. I don't know if everybody passed gas. They they, they went on and on and on because people were filling their red plastic uh, canisters uh, with gasoline to feed. What would it be to feed their uh, their generators? Uh, how long can that last? Uh, listening to what's been happening in uh, the New Orleans area, uh, the gas stations have run out of gas, so people can't even feed their their generators. I mean, it's worse than dealing with the problem on a piecemeal basis. Uh, again, just, to me, it just seems that the solution is so obvious, it's so clear, it's a little expensive, but in the long run, it put those electric lines underground, and uh, we don't have to worry about generators, we don't have to worry about blackouts, we'll... Uh, we can continue with electricity no matter what the storm brings. And you talk about expensive. I think a, a whole home uh, propane fired uh, generator, you're talking about a five figure investment for most homeowners. And that's not something most of us can afford to do, um, even though I think it makes a great deal of sense to have that out here. But 
that's a, that's a huge expense. No question. I bet, I bet a lot of people have it. Just... They do. But so now you're talking about putting people in a situation where it's only, again, the wealthy and those right. that have, you know, financial resources at their fingertips who can be guaranteed power when something bad happens. And who ironically already have their lines buried. You know, these yeah. are houses where the lines are already buried and they're the ones with the gen. Yeah. And, you know, in the meantime, PSEG right before Henri came was like, just FYI, probably not going to have power for mm-hmm. seven to 10 days. If it's a direct hit, just, just get ready, prepare. And I remember listening to, I mean, it must've been one of his last pressers, um, you know, Cuomo was like, that's unacceptable. You know, you can't, he was like, I think his quote was something like, I don't need you to provide power on a sunny day. Mm-hmm. Like I need you to provide power during a situation like this. And basically PSEG was already throwing its hands in the air saying, well, that's not going to be possible. So now, you know, the rest of us right. that can't afford five figure generators on our houses are going to be the ones that have to suffer with a direct hit. And let's just be very clear. Like we just dodged two major bullets in the span of three weeks, you know? And it's, it's no accident when you look at the new the images coming out of New Orleans, the poorest neighborhoods where the power lines are all leaning over. Gee, why have they not buried the power lines in the, in the most vulnerable areas? And you can take one look at the economic situation of the neighborhood and know exactly why they haven't done it. And that's the thing that just kills me, especially, I'm sorry, I'm going to get kind of political here, but after all of the money that we just wasted in Afghanistan for 20 years and they can't bury the power lines in this country. So I'm kind of hoping that this, these storms are like a wake-up call coinciding with this infrastructure bill that maybe it'll finally be like, okay, now's the time. I feel like the, the Henri and Ida uh, drove home the point, Carl, we are not prepared. Are we in any way for these storms and climate change in general? No, I mean, uh, the column two that I, that I wrote about lessons learned from Henry uh, deals with uh, how coastlines I mean, uh, in t- terms of, uh, you've seen the, the, these uh, videos uh, on the TV of uh, 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 this little island, Grand Island, I think. It is, it's, it's just off New Orleans. Once yeah. Yeah. Well, we visited it because uh, they make Tabasco there. On a trip to New Orleans, we went to the Tabasco. Fa- but it's, it's been utterly devastated, demolished. And they talk about it not being able to come back, you know, for years. I mean, the overhead... Shots just show, and here on here on Long Island, despite uh, efforts to, uh, I, I do many a column, quoting Kevin McAllister, H two O, saying we must move out of vulnerable areas, uh, and uh, like there was uh, a plan out on East Hampton to uh, uh, shift the location of some of those motels that are right there in the teeth of the ocean, and. Uh, it, it didn't, it really didn't uh, ultimately gain traction. So instead, there were these uh, sandbags in front of these motels on the beach in Montour now, today, uh, which are not going to withstand a, a serious hurricane. Take Dune Road uh, in, in West Hampton. And so, I mean, uh, those, those uh, uh, once, once uh, somebody used the term, and I don't want to use it, but these plywood paradises there along Dune Road are just sitting ducks for a, for a storm that's to hit. Uh, it's one thing, you know, to, uh, I don't know, for people to, to take the risk themselves of having a, a home in uh, the teeth of the, uh, of the Atlantic Ocean. But the way it's all been set up, talking about vested interests here, uh, the government uh, ends up, bailing these people out, the cost is enormous. I mean, right now there's a plan that I first began reporting on as a journalist on Long Island and believe it or not, 1962. And it, it's, it's, it's called the Fire Island to Montauk. Uh, I forgot what the, the rest of the name of it, but it's, it's, it, was, it was tens of millions of dollars then to dump sand and build groins, uh, jetties basically, along the coastline from Montauk back to Fire Island. It, it really is ended up being nowhere, but now it's getting somewhere, but it's the wrong way to go in terms of resilience. And now it's going to cost $1.5 billion to groins are out because we know now how groins, they rob Peter to pay Paul, stopped sand at one point 
along an ocean front, but rob that sand from getting with literal drift uh, down that shore. So groins are out, but uh, in fact, uh, some groins are gonna be removed under the uh, reconfigured uh, uh, plan. But still, we're talking about millions, tens of millions of dollars to dump sand along uh, the coastline of Long Island to somehow protect these houses that, I mean, even the New Testament talks about how you shouldn't build your house in sand. I mean, th th this goes way back in human history. You just don't do it. I've been told that early folks on Long Island 150, 200 years ago never would have dreamed of building a house on the barrier beach. Okay, you can, you can build a vacation home and you take your luck. We have all these house houses, one after another, along Boone Road and elsewhere, Montauk, and, and all the other vulnerable areas. Robert Moses learned that when he tried to build the causeways along, like I think the Jones Beach area, you know, like the sand kept moving out from underneath them. It just wasn't a good thing. But, you know, also, I mean, there's also the other elephant in the room is the Army Corps of Engineers. Like how many times across the country have we seen these sort of misguided projects that they put into place that have to then be undone by the Army Corps of Engineers or they undo themselves because they were just not a great plan to begin with, you know? Well, Carl, the other, the other thing that happens is all of those oceanfront properties now want individual protection from the ocean. So they want to build seawalls and that, that creates an even more of a, you know, they, they want hard structures because I don't want to lose my house to the ocean. And then you lose the beach, um, in front of it and on either side of it. So, you know, I know Southampton Village a couple of years ago started revisiting its policy and was thinking about starting to allow um, hard structures on the coast again. I think they backed away from that, fortunately. But, uh, you know, that's the, the other resulting thing that comes from all that. It's, uh, well, I guess all of us who live up in the woods are going to have oceanfront property and <laughs> at some point. Well, I think also, I mean, you have to look at what other communities have done, what other coastal communities have done. I mean, you go down to Wrightsville Beach in North Carolina, which is basically this little barrier, you know, beach um, island, um, you know, that connects, it's right off Wilmington. All of the houses, the ground floors are basically built to be flooded because it's like, it's, it's an expectation um, and we have dear friends who have a house down there and their bottom floor of their house, if it's completely flooded, it's totally fine. Their house will survive. Um, but they've put those kind of regulations in place. And in fairness to the town of East Hampton, in their Hamlet study, they did try to force a serious and strong coastal resiliency conversation for Montauk. And you just saw incredible pushback from everybody. But I, I think it's kind of unfair if those same hotel and motel owners come back and say, well, now, you know, you need to build, you know, seawalls and all these other things and take away the beach. But meanwhile, there was a plan in place that was like, look, should we talk about moving you? Should we talk about how we make downtown Montauk resilient in the long term, given what it's facing? And, you know, basically it was we don't really want to talk about that right now. Well, then you have the weird debate going on in Sac Harbor where a lot of the very historic homes are in very low-lying areas. And some people, in order to preserve their flood insurance, have have put in proposals to raise their houses up in the air, but it doesn't fit in the historical um, district. So I think that's another really interesting debate, especially in places like Sac Harbor, where it's not like ocean waves that are battering it, but it's just sort of bay sea level rise and the debate of trying to preserve the historic district, but at the same time, um, let people do what they kind of need to do and raise their houses up out of the danger of the flood. So very interesting. So many of these issues are interconnected. It's really interesting. We started off talking about undergrounding power lines and you end up, you know, these, these issues are all, it, they're, they're all interconnected and they're all related to the, the coming changes in, in uh, the weather patterns that we're already starting to see. You say coming changes, but I think the changes are here. And yeah. It's only going to get worse. And I think that we, and, and they, whoever they are can talk this to, to death, but if action isn't taken soon, whether it's burying power lines or raising houses or, or other stuff, then it's just going to be too late. You talk about burying power lines, that, that's a multi-year project. It's not like they're going to say, okay, and, and it's going to be done in a year. I mean, that's going to take a really long time to do. 
um, it's, it's time it's time for action. Climate change effects are, are here and we just need to get moving with it. So do any of us have our power lines buried in front of our homes? No. I don't. Nope. 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 All right, well, well, we know what side of the road we lie on, don't we? <laughs> I have, you know, I, I do, you know, want to send us off with one bit of hurricane preparedness advice, which I very rarely see, which is when you know that a bad storm is coming, go and buy a couple of packages of your favorite ice cream. Because then when the power goes out, I mean, you got to eat it. There's, there, there's, yeah. there's oh, I, I think you, you should probably start eating it even before the power yeah. goes out, just in case the power goes out. Then, you know, there's no guilt involved <laughs> when that happens. So that's my little that's my little <laughs> tip for you there. Just throwing it out. Take it to the bank. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.